If you have your Bible, then please turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at the very last verse of Romans 1 today, Romans 1.32. If you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the black pew Bibles uh, that are on the pews around you. I believe in that Bible. It's on page 939. If I am wrong about that, I apologize. Uh, but you are also welcome to keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have one. I know you can get to the Bible on your phone, all that kind of stuff, but I think there's just value in having it in your hand, and we want to give that to you as a gift. Uh, so please take that if you don't have a Bible. Uh, let's read this verse, Romans 1.32. It says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This verse is showing that all people everywhere, created in God's image, have a knowledge of what it is that God says is right and wrong and some implications from that. When I was in middle school, I played tennis. And there, is, there are very few places where you can see more ridiculous behavior than on a middle school tennis team. And I remember one day we, we were out practicing, and the coach had gone over into his, his little building. I don't even know what you call it. And uh, these guys were out there just, just hitting the balls back and forth. And all of a sudden, I don't even remember why, but three or four of these guys just decided to start trying to climb the fence. You can, you can picture the, the fences that are around tennis courts. They're not the normal fence. They're really tall. And I guess they just had the thought, coaches over in that building, we'll just go for it. So they went for it, and the coach came out and said, guys, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Don't climb the fence. I've never thought that I needed to make that rule before. Don't climb the fence, because it just seems so obvious. But here's what he said. He said, guys, I know that you know this. I know you know you're not supposed to do that, and the way that I know is because every step that you took up that fence, you looked over to where I was to see, is coach looking? And that is the position that all of us are in. So that ridiculous misbehavior on the middle school tennis team, well, all of us can understand it. All of us can understand it according to what it says in verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree, even those who are completely without the Scriptures, even those who have never heard the name of Jesus, there is something built into us from God where we know these things about God and are not only accountable, but without excuse, as it is said earlier in the chapter. As we get into this verse, this is the last verse in Romans 1, but we are in a section that started in verse 18, but right before verse 18 comes verses 16 and 17. And I want to read those to you up front before we get into this. It says, verses 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Those two verses are the theme of the whole book of Romans. They are the point. They are summing it all up. And he is saying that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation. There is salvation. That's the word that's in verse 16. That it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And when you get to verse 18, 
all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, what Paul is going to do here, what he's been doing, what he continues to do that we're going to keep working through is showing what we need to be saved from. The word salvation doesn't make any sense unless somebody is in trouble. Nobody gets saved unless there is something to be saved from, a situation to be saved out of. And what is it that the angel announced when Jesus was going to be born? When he said what it was that that Mary and Joseph were to name their son, he said, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from the Romans? From their sins, is what he said. He will save his people from their sins. So I want you to just know that as, as we're in this section, ever since we've been at verse 18 and all the way down to chapter 3, verse 20, the Bible has just been poking people in the eye. And it's going to keep on poking us in the eye today. But there's a reason that it's poking us so hard into the eye and pushing that finger just a little bit harder and harder in there is because we don't want to come away with any kind of illusion that we didn't need to be saved or that we could have been saved apart from the gospel by our own goodness, or by our own religion, as it's going to get into in chapter 2, or by anything about ourselves, or by our inherent goodness, or by our making it up to God, or by our doing enough good works. There is absolutely no chance of that, and that is why the Bible just keeps on driving it home, verse after verse, where we are right now. We need to see the depth of human depravity so that we can see the beauty of the light of the gospel. As Steve Lawson always puts it, that you need to have that black felt behind the beautiful diamond at the jeweler to see just how brightly it shines. And today we're looking at the black felt some more. We're going to keep on seeing the depravity of man. In this section, he talked about how there is the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The ungodliness having to do with all people everywhere having some knowledge of God through what has been created and yet not responding to that knowledge of God in bowing down and worshiping God, but instead responding to it by rebelling against God and by turning not to worship God but to worship created things, to invent other man-made systems of religion and idols and all kinds of other things. And that ungodliness then spilled over into unrighteousness. The unrighteousness that he started describing in verse 24 of the impurity of the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, which he explains in what Paul sees as the clearest example of that in verses 26 and 27 of homosexuality, which is not a new thing by any means. He was just listing that as look at how bad it gets. And then he goes on in verse 29 and says, yeah, the most obvious place where our minds go about what does it look like to behave in unrighteousness has to do with sexual immorality. But he said not just sexual immorality, but all manner of unrighteousness. And he lists out 21 kinds of vices. And within those vices is even this term that says inventors of evil which shows you that it's not, limited, list, it's not limited to just the 21 things on the list, but there is inventions of all kinds of other ways to break God's law. But the question would then come up, well, what about people who don't have the Bible? What about people who have never heard any kind of teaching about God's law, let alone God's gospel? Well, that is actually what this entire section is addressing. 
all the way from verse 18 down to verse 32. It is saying this is the natural course of man. All of the Gentile nations all the way out there in the coastlands and everywhere, all of these places who have never heard, who have invented all kinds of other religions, it is saying this is the natural course of human beings. This is where the human heart goes. But there's two reasons that are given here why it is that even though they've never heard that they're without excuse. Even before you and I ever heard, we were without excuse. The first reason that he gave was back in verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that had been made, that these qualities about God were known, and so they were without excuse. And the second reason is given right here in this verse. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So let's think first about what it is that mankind knows. There, there is here in this verse the knowing and the doing and the approving of what is deadly against God. So if you are not following along on the back of your bulletin, then it might not be quite as clear. Um, we put that there so that maybe you can make some sense of the jumble of words that comes out of my mouth from this pulpit. The first thing we see here is that mankind knows what deserves death. And it starts in knowing about God's law. It says, though they knew God's righteous decree. Now he's going to go on and he's going to explain that that righteous decree, the thing that they know has to do with the deserving of death for certain things, built into that, and even in that word that's, that's translated as righteous decree, is the idea that there is a knowledge that is inherently built into every human being of right and wrong, of what is right, of what is wrong, of what we call God's eternal moral law. It says they know this. That word righteous decree, it's used throughout the Bible and throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about God's statutes, God's rules, God's commandments. And it's saying here that there's a knowledge of those things even among those who have never heard of the Bible. There's a knowledge of them. You see this in the way, as, as we talked about last week, that, that even the most unabashed criminals will try to justify themselves. They have a sense that they ought to be good people, that they ought to have some kind of a morality in the way that they go about their immorality, that they ought to have an ethical lack of ethics, as the dark side hackers will come out and say, sorry, we didn't mean to cause any social problems. We'll try to do better in just sticking to stealing without shutting down any pipelines from here on out, right? You, you see this all over the place as, as people everywhere want to justify themselves, e even as they go deeply into sin and love to say things like, well, I'm not perfect and I'm not trying to be, but I think I'm a pretty good person and here's the reasons. Maybe you yourself are doing that. But the knowledge that you ought to be a good person just reveals that there is something about the law of God that is stamped on your heart. It's stamped on everybody's heart. And what is that knowledge? How is it stamped there? Well, he's going to explain that a little bit more down in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, for when the Gentiles, and when it says Gentiles there, it's talking about everybody in the whole world apart from the Jewish nation who at that time were the only ones who had received that direct revelation of the law of God. But it says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, 
they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the conscience. This is one of the ways that everybody in the whole world knows that there is a God, even those who most vehemently defend the idea that there is no God. They know that there is a God because they have a conscience and because they can look out at the world and it's plain that this was created by God, no matter how often and how uh, cleverly they would try to deny that. It's there. But you see it in the conscience. I may have, I, I, it may have been a while since I said anything about this guy that I knew years ago who was, who was an active atheist, active in atheist organizations, um, active in suing school districts who would say under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, things like that. But he took an interest in me personally that, that was sort of like an, evan, like an atheist evangelistic interest. Uh, he, I think that he thought that it would just be like a really, really great feather in his cap if he could get a Baptist pastor to become an atheist. Um, and, and so he really, really tried to, to persuade me there for a while as, as I was trying to share the gospel with him. But, uh, but one of the things that he told me was, you know what? People accuse atheists of, of being immoral, and that's how people think of atheists. But I think I'm very moral, and I think if you look at my children that they're very, very moral people. They're great children. And so they're examples of how you don't have to be uh, a believer in God to have morals. But what I could never get him to explain to me is what are those morals based on? What are they based on? It, 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 It makes absolutely no sense to have any kind of definition at all of good and evil apart from one who sets the definition of good and evil, who is God, our creator. What I'm getting at here is that even those who most deny it, when they understand that in their conscience that there is such a thing as good and evil, they are right there without excuse for the denial of the God who wrote good and evil onto their hearts. The fact that we have a conscience is evidence of the existence of God, and it's something that makes us very clearly accountable before God. Now, what does that look like? Well, the conscience can be, can be in good shape. The conscience can be in bad shape. We all know that. In various ways, we've all experienced that. We've all seen that. The conscience can be dull. The conscience can be distorted. And I would submit to you that Every person is, in fact, born with a distorted conscience. And that's because of sin. Adam didn't come into the world with a distorted conscience, but everybody since him has, with the one exception of Jesus, who was born sinless. But this is part of our depraved nature, being born with what we call original sin, is that we are not born neutral. We are born with hearts that are inclined toward evil. And so if you take a piece of paper and, and you write out on it this, the, the, the Gettysburg Address, this beautiful speech, and then you, you could take that piece of paper and you could, you could post it up on the wall and anybody could come along and they could read it and it would be clear. Or you could take that same piece of paper that has those same words written on it and you could wad it up into a ball and pour coffee on it and rip it. And it's going to be a lot harder to read at that point. But the words are still written there. 
And there's still something to make out. And what the depraved human conscience is like is like that. It's got the moral law of God written on it in the conscience, but it's distorted, it's wadded up, it's coffee-stained, it's all kinds of things through sin. But we can also know what it is that's written on that conscience. When it says they know God's righteous decree, we can know what those things are that are written on the conscience. And you know where you find them in the most clear form is in Exodus chapter 20, what we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, which I am in full agreement with, says this about, about this law of God being written on human hearts. It says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart. The same law is that which was first written in the heart of man that continued to be the perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. Now, when we say, what are the decrees that people know, I think we can actually look at the Bible and see it. We can see what is God's universal, eternal, moral law for everyone. Now, if you remember when we went through Exodus, you may or may not remember it better than me, all right? But when we got to Exodus chapter 20, when God spoke the words of the Ten Commandments to Israel, he spoke them differently than he spoke the rest of those laws that he gave. He he gave those laws aloud in his own voice in the hearing of the entire nation, which he didn't do with the rest of the laws that came after that. He, he took his own finger and wrote those Ten Commandments into tablets of stone and then rewrote a second copy after Moses had smashed them so that those tablets could be in the Ark of the Covenant underneath the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. He, he took those Ten Commandments and actually called them the Ten Commandments. There's something unique about those, those Ten Commandments. You get to Exodus chapter 21 through 24 and what's called the book of the covenant, and and God is continuing to give commands, but these seem to be in a different category where he's not speaking them aloud to all of Israel. They're what we call the civil law of God that was set up for the running of the government of the nation of Israel from the time of Moses to the time of the resurrection of Jesus. And then you get past that to Exodus 25 and following, and you get what we call the ceremonial law of God that had to do with the running of the, the, uh, the tabernacle and then later the temple and these sacrifices that were set up, which were from the time of Moses to the time of the resurrection of Jesus. Those things were a specific time for a specific people in a specific situation, but the Ten Commandments were not given that way. They were given as the eternal moral law of God and... You also need to know that the Ten Commandments were not new at Mount Sinai. When God spoke to Moses and all the people these Ten Words, these Ten Commandments, none of these were new to the people because they had been written on human hearts ever since the very beginning, and you can see that in the evidence of the Bible. Let me just go through it for you. The first commandment is, you shall have no other God before me. And this was already way before Exodus 20, where God had said, uh, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. He didn't have to give the first commandment aloud for people to already know it. The second commandment about not having idols, this is back in Genesis 35. It says, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean. 
And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their land, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. They knew, even without having the announcement on Mount Sinai, that you shall not worship these graven images. And the third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. This is in Job 1.5. Job who lived before the time of Moses, probably around the time of Abraham. Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. The fourth commandment about the Sabbath, which is the most controversial commandment, where, uh, where, where people say, well, maybe it just started at Mount Sinai and then ended at the resurrection of Jesus, which I can understand because I used to think that, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I used to think that, because it's the most clear one that was built in from the very beginning. In Genesis 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. This was in the seventh day of creation because in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. And even in the giving of that commandment about the Sabbath day, setting, working for six days and then having the seventh as a day of rest that's holy to the Lord, the reason that's given in the commandment itself, it says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He doesn't say it's because I'm setting up a temporary system where you do this. He says it's because I built it in from the beginning, the Sabbath command. And then we get to, to the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. That was known before then. Genesis 28, Jacob obeyed his father and his mother after a time of dishonoring them. This command about murder, the sixth commandment. Remember Cain and Abel? It was clear that murder was evil before the Ten Commandments had been announced. The command about adultery, the seventh commandment. Well, Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife asked uh, Joseph, to commit adultery, Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He didn't say, well, this is great because God hasn't given any command about that yet. No, he knew it was wickedness and sin against God. And of course, the people also knew that that, that command about adultery, that command about not engaging in sexual immorality, extended beyond the most literal definition of adultery because God destroyed Sodom. God destroyed Sodom. The command about stealing, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Well, back in Genesis 33, Jacob has to come up with this system to make sure that Laban is not going to steal livestock from him. It was apparent to everybody, stealing is wrong. You shall not bear false witness. Job 13.4, again, Job lived long before Moses. Job said to his foolish friends, as for you, you whitewash with lies. They knew it was wrong. The last commandment, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Well, that goes right back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve looking at that fruit and seeing that it was beautiful, wanting what was not supposed to be theirs. Those ten commandments, well, they, they are written on human hearts, and that's why they resonate with people all over the world. That's why they're going to resonate with people that you meet who have no interest in the gospel at all, and yet when you bring up the idea of what does it mean to be a good person, they're probably going to give you something along the lines of some of the Ten Commandments. Certainly not all of the Ten Commandments, because among the people that I have shared the gospel with, I, I'll say it's very common for them to bring up to me the Ten Commandments, even to claim before I say anything about it that they are keepers of the Ten Commandments. To which I respond, are you sure? Do you know what the first commandment is? Do you know what the second commandment is? The third? The fourth? 
Usually they mean the last six. But even when you go through those, it's pretty easy to, to say, wait a second, you're a keeper of the Ten Commandments? Have you ever lied about anything? Are you telling me the truth right now? Oh, these things, they indict us, but people know them. Another thing that happens when I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with people, it's a very common conversation for someone to say, well, I think that all religions are the same, which is a dodge of the heart to try to say, I don't have to be accountable to any religion because they're just all this mess that's out there that I can judge from the outside as, as the one who can see the wisdom that none of the people inside those religions can see, that this is all just the same sociological phenomenon. But the reason that they will say that they're all the same is, well, because the Ten Commandments. There's all, they all have this idea of what is good and what is evil, and it's so similar. Do you know why there are similarities in what religions teach about morality? It's because the eternal moral law of God is written on the hearts of every human being. But certainly those other religions do not obey the first or second or third or fourth commandments having to do with worshiping God alone. They don't teach those things at all. But you need to know this. Every human being has the decrees of God written on their hearts, which are expressed most clearly, summarized most clearly in the Ten Commandments and expounded throughout the Scriptures. Another thing that everyone knows is that God's, uh, God's law and the breaking of God's law deserves God's death penalty. This is what it says next. Though they knew God's righteous decree which has to do with the eternal moral law of God that we call the Ten Commandments being written on people's hearts. Though they knew that, and they knew that those who practice such things deserve to die. Deserve to die. Now, what are we talking about here when we say they knew that those who practice such things deserve to die? First of all, we need to know what are they talking about when they say practice such things? Well, it's the breaking of the Ten Commandments. It's the breaking of those decrees that are written on the human heart. It's the breaking of the conscience. But it's also listed out right here in the verses that came right before this verse pretty clearly. This is the breaking of the command to worship God alone as they would exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things as they would turn from worshiping the, creature, or the creation to worshiping the created things, the, cre the creature. It's, it has to do with being given over to dishonorable passions and all kinds of sexual immorality that are listed out from verses 24 through verse 27. It has to do with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, Inventions of evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Those are the things that it's saying. And it says, the whole world, with the conscience that God has given, knows that those who practice such things, those things, deserves to die. What does it mean by deserves to die? Well, it can't be talking about physical death, because everybody goes through physical death. Except if you're a believer in Christ and you're still alive at the time when Jesus returns. 
that may or may not be God's purpose for you. But other than that, everybody goes through physical death, so that can't be what it's talking about. Do you know what it's talking about here? It says here that written on the human heart is a knowledge of the decrees of God and a knowledge that breaking the law of God deserves eternal punishment in what we call hell. This says it right here. That the world, so often those who we would share the gospel with, would just bring up immediately the idea of hell as a way to dismiss our message. And yet, the Bible says, and I think we all know it, the reality of hell is written on the human heart. It's not just the reality of the law of God. It's the reality that we know that there is a wage of sin, which is death, as Romans 6.23 puts it. What are we talking about when, when we say this, this, this death that's written here? Well, it is what's called in Revelation 20 and 21, the second death. Not just a physical death, but the second death that is the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. Another translation is fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what we're talking about. This hell where, where those who go who do not embrace Jesus Christ in faith, it is eternal, conscious torment. Now, now those who want there not to be any talk about hell are still those who know that it's what sin deserves. That's what the Bible tells us right here. But so often you can grow numb to sin, and you can grow numb to the holiness of God. When you grow numb to sin, you grow numb to the holiness of God. And when you grow numb to the holiness of God, you grow numb to sin. And it is a vicious cycle that turns hearts who know that sin deserves eternal punishment, turns those hearts to say, but that ought not to be because I'm actually a pretty good person. Or because that guy I knew was actually a pretty good person. Or Gandhi or whoever else. Oh, look at these good people. How can I believe in hell? To get to that point, you have to ignore the reality of the holiness of God. If God is holy, then any violation of his holiness is eternally serious. That's the reality of hell. Hell is not a place where uh, the, the question at the end of someone's life is, were you better than most people? Or were you better than this mark right here? Or something like this. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What, what is sin? It's, it is anything in thought, word, or deed where we have not completely loved God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and loved our neighbor as ourselves. Who is it that's guilty of sin? Everybody, except for Jesus. Jesus, when he was asked about this, he said, there is no one good except God alone. There is no one good except God alone. And what is that hell? As I said, it is eternal, conscious torment. The Bible speaks of it as a lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 10, that day and night burns forever and ever. That's eternal. Jesus speaks of it as eternal, and he speaks of it as conscious there are some out there who would try to reduce the reality of hell by teaching a doctrine called annihilationism, which is this, this idea that if someone goes to hell, that what happens is that they just burn up and they disappear and their suffering is just momentary and then they cease to exist. 
that's not the way Jesus described it at all. Jesus described it in Luke 16 as a place of torment, a place of anguish, a place of fire, where people beg to have just a single drop of water placed on their tongue so that they might have a moment of relief, but it never comes forever and ever. It's eternal, it is conscious, it is torment. Jesus also said in Mark 9, and he was quoting from Isaiah 66, that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We need to know about this, and I know that you do know about this. I know that you know about this because the Bible says so right here. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. But you need to consider eternity. You need to consider eternity. The next time that you walk down to the beach, try this. I want you to actually try this. Go down to the beach, and while your hand is still clean, lick your finger. And then put it down into the sand on the beach when you first get there. Then take your finger and look at it and see if you can count or estimate how many grains of sand you just picked up on your wet finger. I'm going to guess it'll be something like 60, 80, 100, maybe more than that. And then look out at the whole beach. Consider how many grains of sand there are. Do you know how many years God might give you in this life? Maybe 60, 80, 100? And do you know how many years are there in eternity? If you look out on that whole beach and all the grains of sand that are there, that's not even the beginning of it. We need to know that those who practice such things deserve to die. And we need to embrace the path of life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, you need eternal life. You need eternal life. But it says here that those who know these things, they not only practice them, they not only do them, but they also give approval to those who practice them. What happens when people grow numb to sin? What happens when people grow numb to God's holiness? Well, they go deeper and deeper and more and more comfortable with sin, with the breaking of God's moral law. What do they do? They do all the stuff that was listed in those previous verses, on and on and on from sexual immorality that they would try to define as moral for whatever reason. The world, oh, the world is in such confusion about this right now. I have to say, there are so many aspects of the Me Too movement that I am completely in favor of. I have thought for years and years, why in the world would women have to go through what they have been going through just in order to get a part on a TV commercial? I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. But even as the world starts to figure that out and starts to develop this new set of morals, well, what actually is good, they just can't figure it out. All these things about consent, all of these things, I mean, how do you even define that? All of these things about what should and should not be done, and you get all these these politicians saying, the rules changed right out from under me, what do I do? Right? Well, it's very simple in the Scriptures. Consent is called marriage. <laughs> and, and it is between one man and one woman, and it is exactly how God set it up. And, but, oh, 
there is such confusion. The world just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into these things, trying to have some kind of morality while just plunging themselves, as it says, even though they know that those who practice such things, they do them. But then it says, neither not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I want you to hear this. The way that this is worded, the way that this is worded is not just, okay, there is the doing of these things, and then there is also the approval of these things. If it were just worded that way, then we would probably let ourselves off the hook a little bit for the approval of such things. Because it's easy to say to yourself, well, you know what, there's, at least I'm not doing these things. You know, I might, I might really get a thrill out of it when somebody sins, but I'm not doing it. The way this is worded, the grammar of the text... It's in Greek, and it's in English too, and you can see it, is that it is actually worse in God's sight to approve of the doing of such things than to do the things yourself. Let me just read you the way that it's worded. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That not only but is a way of saying this first thing, the not only, that is bad. The second thing, but also stepping it up, that is worse. It is worse. Now, if you have, uh, if you kind of absorbed uh, the, the pop evangelical theology that sort of floats out there around churches and Christian radio stations and all those kinds of places, then, then you might wonder how could anybody say that one sin is worse than another sin? Because there is a very popular teaching out there that says that all sins are completely equal in God's sight. In a sense, I, I know where that's coming from. It's coming from places like, uh, like James 2.10, where it says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. The way that that concept is put across in the Baptist Catechism, question 89, says every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in that which is to come. Every sin deserves the wage of sin, which is death. And there are also sins which are more heinous in God's sight than other sins, whether in themselves or through, as the Baptist Catechism puts it, several aggravations that some would pile up sin upon sin. The way we know this is because the Bible says it. It says it in this verse that we're looking at. They not only do this, but also this thing up above it is worse. We know this through places like John 19, where Jesus is on trial in front of Pilate, and Pilate, Jesus acknowledges that Pilate is in sin, but then he says, who, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It, it is just throughout Scripture that there actually are things that are worse than other things. And one of, one of those places is right here. That it is actually worse to give approval to those who practice these deadly things than it is to do them yourself. Now, the world has all kinds of little catchphrases that they would throw out there. They would say, well, you're not in favor of abortion. Well, don't get an abortion. Okay, I agree with that. Don't get an abortion. And if you have, then God is 
throw yourself in the mercy of Christ, and he forgives, and he is gracious. Oh, he forgives, and he is gracious. But if we then say, well, I'm not going to do it, but I'll just sit by while it's done, or not even just sit by while it's done, but I will give approval to this. I will say that it's a matter of justice. How could that possibly be? I'm going to I'm going to go off on a tangent. How could it possibly be a matter of justice to take the life of those who are literally the most defenseless and vulnerable in the world? It's not a matter of justice. It's a matter of murder. But the world would say, well, you don't like abortion, just don't get one. The world would also say, well, you just don't, you, you don't like same-sex marriage? Well, don't get same-sex married. But then they would also do things like make these state laws where people are hunted down and prosecuted for not approving of same-sex marriage. States actually do that. There's a man in in Colorado named Jack Phillips, and if you haven't heard of him, just go Google Jack Phillips. His case, the state of Colorado went after him as a cake baker. He, He was perfectly willing to sell any cake in his shop to anyone who came into his shop, And yet when someone came in and asked him, will you custom design a cake using your artistic ability to celebrate our same-sex wedding? He said, I can't do that in good conscience, but here's here's some bakers that will. And they prosecuted. The state of Colorado prosecuted him, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he won. And they keep prosecuting him, and they are prosecuting him right now, demanding that he will give approval to those who practice such things. It's happened with florists, it's happened with cake bakers, it's happened with photographers, but guys, you need to know that it's not just florists and cake bakers and photographers. This is something where every single one of you, sooner or later, whether or not you have had to take a stand about this, you will be confronted with this, and you will be asked to give approval to those who do such things. It's come in terms of same-sex marriage. It's come in terms of all kinds of expression of self-identity. This is the the culture of self-expressive individualism that we are living in. Where we are, the the, the mindset of our culture is that the ultimate good of the individual is to authentically express who you feel to be on the inside. That is the responsibility of the individual in our, our culture's mindset. But the responsibility of the society and the persons surrounding the individual is to then therapeutically affirm that that expression of self. So, so that if, if you fail to therapeutically say, this is beautiful, I am so glad that you have expressed who you truly are, if you fail to do that, then you are said to be the evil person. It's completely backwards. It's completely backwards to the law of God. It's completely upside down. And yet, it's what we're floating in. It's what we're floating in. You need to know that you will be asked to give approval to those who do such things, and you need to stand firm and not do it. Why would it say, why would it put it in the grammar like this, that those who give approval to such things, that that's even a step above doing them? Here's the way that Jesus put it. He said, woe to the one through whom temptation comes. If any of you causes one of these little ones to sin, then it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea. That's why it's worse. 
Because there's a difference between practicing these things and giving approval and leading these little ones into the sin where you would be better off drowned in the sea than doing that. Do not give approval to such things. Very basic practical thing. When your cousin that you deeply love invites you to their same-sex wedding and says, if you really cared about us, then you would come. Don't go. You can't go. Being in attendance at a wedding is an act of approval. <laughs> That's what it is. When, when your grandchild says, you must, if you really love me, Grandpa, then you will recognize that I actually am a girl trapped in a boy's body. You can't go along with that. There's a man who went to jail for not recognizing that in his child's life in, in, uh, in Canada. But guys, we can't do it. We are not to give approval to those who practice these things. Comes up in other ways too. That's the most obvious one. That's the way you're going to get pressured, most obviously, to, to give approval to such things. But it might be coming up in your own life in ways that you've just dismissed as, well, everybody does this. Everybody watches these things on their screens. Everybody's talking about this TV show that's streaming where people take off their clothes and practice such things. I can do it too. I've heard it's entertaining. Maybe it will entertain me. I'm bored. Don't do that. <laughs> You've got to cut that out of your life, Christian. We cannot have this as part of our lives. Even if you say that you're, you're not the kind of person who is affected by that. Now, certainly, if you're seeking out the stuff that's not just mainstream entertainment that happens to contain those pornographic things and all that stuff, if you are actually seeking out the content itself, I, I know you need to. I know that you know that you need to cut that out of your life. So do it and get it into the light. Get it out of your life. But you also need to know that this is also in the buying of tickets to movies where these things are being done in the increasing of clicks and downloads on shows where this is being done, if you can watch people engaging in immoral behavior on your screen for your entertainment, you are giving approval to those who do such things, to those who practice them. Now, there's a big difference between things that you know are not real on the screen. You know, if you see someone pretend to shoot someone else with a laser beam on screen, we know that that's not real. But you see someone take off their clothes and engage in immorality on screen, and you know what you are doing in participating in that entertainment. You are building up that industry, promoting it, enjoying it, giving approval to those who practice such things, and saying to yourself, but I don't do those things. I just really enjoy it when people do them for me. Cut it out of your life. Even if you don't get to watch the next episode of your show... The way Jesus put it is if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better to go into life without an eye, without a hand, than to be cast into hell. That's the way Jesus phrased it. You also need to know that giving approval to sin is a church matter. It's a church matter. In Ephesians 5 that we prayed through this morning, it said, you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one be deceived, or let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 7, do not associate with them. Associate with them means be partners with them. Pretend that we are partners together in the gospel with those who are engaged in and defending sexual immorality and covetousness and all kinds of things that are against God. He warns us up front that there will be empty words to try to seek to deceive us into approving such things. Empty words like, but God forgives sinners, so don't worry about it. You can be in association with those who are in this open, unrepentant sin because God is forgiving, and why aren't you, you legalist Pharisee? Those are empty words, and the Bible instructs us very clearly, do not associate with them. So this is a church matter. We had to deal with this back a few years ago when there was that Supreme Court decision of Burgefell back in 2015. And the denomination that we were a part of at the time had a big, giant party about it. And we had to make the decision, will we continue to be in association with that? And the command of God was no. The command of God was no. It comes down to our association, not just with outside churches and organizations, but with our own members. With our own members, as, as we have to be accountable to each other. And we have to take these things seriously. To keep somebody in membership of the church who is engaged in unrepentant immorality, to do that is for our church to be giving approval to those who practice these things. Let me tell you another step, another implication of this, is that that's one of the reasons why we cannot keep people in membership who are not with us anymore. It's not because we think that somebody moving to Pennsylvania is, a, is a, this awful sin or something like that. Although, Pennsylvania? But if somebody's not with us anymore, how can we even know what's in their life? How do we even know what we're giving approval to? And especially if somebody's right here in our community and refuses to even show up for a year. How do we have any idea what we're giving approval to in their lives? And we pray and we seek and we're to go after the lost sheep and we're to love, but there comes a point when we have to say we don't even know what we're associating ourselves with anymore. And, and, and so, guys, the Bible, just, it just says do not associate with those who practice such things. Do not give approval to those who practice them. But you need to know also, as I told you, the Bible just sticks its finger just deeper and deeper down into the eye socket of humanity, deeper and deeper down into your soul to show you that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. But there's good news, which is that there is a Savior. Now, if you were sitting down in the church at Rome receiving this letter, you would have the entire thing read aloud to you all at once. And we are going through it pretty slowly. So I just want you to know that Romans 3.21 is coming. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
as he goes deeper and deeper into describing the depth of sin, this just shows us the depth of what it is that Jesus took on his own self on the cross where he died. He went in our place, in the place of those who practice such things, in the place of those who give approval to such things. He went in their place, and he bore the death that we deserve, that we knew that we deserved. But he took it in our place. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everybody knows the first half of that verse, even if they've never heard it before. That's what we were just told. Everybody knows that the wages of sin is death. But you need to hear, and you won't just know in your conscience. You need to hear this, the gospel, that there is a free gift of eternal life that's offered to you. And it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.17 says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned, Through that one man. That's talking about Adam. Death reigned in humanity, but it says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. We have been talking about knowing and doing and approving of what is deadly. But what Romans 5.17 says is that the life that Jesus offers is not just sort of like the yin to the yang of the deadly sin. It is much more. Much more is the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness of the life that is through the one man, Jesus. If you know that you deserve death, if you are convicted of doing things that are against the moral law of God, if you are convicted of giving approval to those things, then look to Jesus. Know that as serious as is the eternal conscious torment of hell, that there is even greater life offered, and that is in Jesus Christ, and it is eternal life. Turn to Jesus and embrace him and live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace of Christ. We know, God, we know that we have all of us, uh, your moral law that's written on our hearts and has been from the very beginning of our existence. And we've understood more and more as we've grown and matured and yet have, have rebelled against. We know that the wages of sin is death. God, the world around us knows that as much as they would suppress the truth. God, I pray that you would grant us to be salt in a bland world, grant us to be light in a dark world, But God, grant us to receive and embrace the free gift of eternal life that is in Jesus, that is much greater than the death that we deserve, the life in Jesus. I pray that that those who are here who have not embraced Jesus in faith, I pray that you would grant them that grace today to receive it as as this free gift that is, is extended and offered. God, by your Holy Spirit, just change their hearts. Show them the beauty of Christ and move them to embrace that life as they repent of their sin. And God, I I pray that those who know this, that you'd help us to have boldness to live as those who are different, who do not give approval to these deadly sins, no matter how much the world demands that we do. And God, I pray that you would grant us to be a church that takes seriously our our call to associate with those who, who we know to be believers in Jesus Christ. 
God, I pray that you would help us to be those who take seriously the, the, um, this treasure that we've been given of the gospel to go and to proclaim, to be those who would be the, the aroma and the fragrance of life to life to those who would believe. Um, God, give us the grace to follow after you according to your law, but even more the grace to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.